Welcome back to the program. We pretty well understand how evolution impacts living organisms. But is it possible that there's any similar kind of survival of the fittest at play with respect to culture, to our ideas, and even to language? If so, with no DNA trail, how do we determine its history? And what relevance does it have to creating a contemporaneous understanding of our culture and language? The answer lies in our use of what has come to be called big data. And my guest, Ezra Aden and Jean-Baptiste Michel, have detailed it in their new book, Uncharted. Erez Aden is an assistant professor of genetics at Baylor College of Medicine, where he directs the Center for Genomic Architecture and of Computer Science and Applied Mathematics at Rice University. Jean-Baptiste Michel is an entrepreneur and scientist. He's a founder of the data science company Quantified Labs and an associate scientist at Harvard University. It is my pleasure to welcome Erez Aden and Jean-Baptiste Michel here to talk about Uncharted, Big Data as a Lens on Human Culture, Erez, Jean-Baptiste, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. Great to have you both here. Erez, let me start with you. Tell us a little bit about uh, how this project got started, how you came to begin to explore some of these ideas. Well, JB and I had been studying the uh, irregular verbs in the English language. Irregular verbs are verbs that when you uh, use them in the past tense, you don't just add ed. So, for instance, jump is a regular verb. Today I jump. Yesterday I jumped. But get is an irregular verb. Today I get. Yesterday I got. So we were studying the irregular verbs, and one of the things the irregular verbs do, which is pretty interesting, is that they disappear uh, irregular verbs tend to, over time, become regular. Uh, for instance, the past tense of help used to be hope, but now it's helped. So we were very interested in that, and uh, we wanted to understand how that process of disappearance took place. And one of the things that that required was just being able to track a verb as it disappeared. And uh, we had two heroic uh, undergraduates, uh, Joe Jackson and Tina Tang, who managed to do this by manually reading uh, numerous grammar textbooks from Old and Middle English and were able to figure out uh, how how these verbs were disappearing. Uh, what was a very striking lesson uh, for us from that project, uh, which was ultimately you know, quite quite successful project, but the data collection was incredibly difficult, and what we were left with was a tiny data set and we came out of that thinking, gosh, you know, it's so important uh, for the future of studies like this to be able to generate data of this type, tracking some sort of word or phrase and its emergence or its disappearance, you know, how help, you know, how hope gradually disappeared uh, and helped sort of gradually entered the language. You know, if we could do the data collection better, it would be eye-opening. It would enable studies vastly more powerful uh, than the initial work that we've done. And, and JB, tell us how Google came into the picture and their ongoing effort to digitize literally all the books in the world. Well, at that point in time when Erez is speaking, we're, um, we're considering how can we access very large records of, about our human culture. And uh, that was in 2006. And at that time, we realized that uh, Google had been digitizing books at very fast pace. At the time, I think they had been they had like eight million books digitized, and that represented something like four percent of all books ever published uh, on Earth. So that's a very large fraction of all books 
right? So <laughs> to us at this point, it was natural to say, well, you know, follow the data. So we decided to, to go to Google and ask them politely if they would let us access the millions of books that had been digitizing for us to turn it into a tool for the scientific um, measurement of trends in our culture, history, and language. And fortunately, that, that worked out quite well. And talk a little bit about how that process, Erez, how that process began and what you started to discover as you opened this up to a much, much larger data set. Well, the process basically involved a uh, you know, lengthy uh, interaction with Google and, and with the data in which we gradually realized all the things that go horribly wrong um, when you try to... Uh, you know, mash together uh, all kinds of books and all kinds of libraries and all kinds of collections, um, you know, by, by a brute force, you know, things like, oh, well, what if there's a mistake in a card catalog? How does that percolate through the system and lead us to believe that a book that was written in uh, 1981 was written in uh, 1581? Because five and nine can look pretty similar. Uh, and of course, that's a pretty big mistake because then you've got a book talking about, you know, computers and uh, atomic energy in 1581. So one of the things that we had to do is come to grips with the types of errors that exist, and that's been an ongoing process at Google. I mean, I think they've overall improved that a, a great deal um, in the intervening time. That was, you know, part of it. Once we were able to get the data to the point that it was clean and uh, you know, clean enough to do real work with, all of a sudden we could do um, tricks like these n-grams, right, where we could take a word or a phrase and compute how frequently it was uh, written in books over time. And that allowed us all of a sudden, you know, it just opened up, you know, so many intellectual cans of worms, right? All of a sudden we could pursue questions spanning linguistics and uh, sociology and history uh, and anthropology uh, in this fun and simple way, but that seemed to be giving us a lot of insight uh, into processes that we'd never, uh, you know, we'd never been able to explore before. And JB, tell us a little bit about some of the findings that began to surprise you, some of these insights that you hit upon even early on in the process. So, uh, so I think actually when we were, w the first thing we wanted to do with this data was very similar to what you said in the introduction of this call, which is we're hoping to see things about the biological evolution of language. So how, like, can we measure things about the birth rate of words, the death rate of words, the rate of evolution of language or ideas? You know, that was very biologically inspired. Uh, but when we first looked at the data, we realized that, A, uh, the data wasn't necessarily uh, showing us obvious thing about that, but more importantly, B, uh, the data was showing us things that were far more interesting than that and far more striking than this. So one big example is the data shows that the mark, the hallmark of censorship and oppression in the books. So when you have a censorship, when you have censorship going on or an oppressive regime, they might be tempted to suppress ideas. And you really do see that when you look at particular words or phrases over time. For instance, in books written in German, uh, during the Nazi regime, you see like the trajectory go down as if pressed by some, the thumb of the oppressive regime. You see the trajectory go down and reach almost a zero. You see that for 
people like Pablo Picasso, uh, Kandinsky, um, and, and many intellectuals, particularly Jewish intellectuals and artists, um, their names, you see this hallmark of suppression in books written in German during the Nazi regime. That kind of signature uh, of, of suppression that you can see only in big data is extremely powerful and extremely promising. We might think of applying this kind of techniques to contemporary culture to track uh, and the, the, the existence of censorship around the world and maybe hope to highlight it and uh, in that way help it uh, help control it. Eris, talk a little bit more about some of the more contemporary uses of this. The project has been was criticized in one article as, as kind of a giant waste of time. Talk a little bit about some of the practical applications of this. I think I know the article that you're uh, referring to. I, I think they didn't quite phrase it as a giant waste of time. They said it was a giant time waste, time waste. which I think is quite different. <laughs> okay. um, you know, a waste of time means were you to invest, uh, you know, time into it, it would be wasted. Whereas a time waster suggests something that, well, maybe the person doesn't think it's terribly useful, but it's so captivating that you are inclined to waste all sorts of time with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's actually a... You know, in some sense, that framing of the question answers the question itself. Look, let us suppose, and I I do not agree with this supposition, but let us suppose that it was, you know, there were not deep academic things that one could do with the Ngram viewer. I think merely the fact that many people all over the world uh, see themselves whiling away an afternoon learning about history, Mm -hmm. right, interacting with history in, in a new way and in a way that captivates them, you know, whether they are elementary school students or, uh, you know, retirees or professors or physicists or whatever they may be, uh, just the fact that people are inclined to spend that much time probing their history, uh, I think is great. I think it increases our engagement with our past. Uh, aside from that, I mean, I think, you know, very broadly speaking, um, you know, there have been a wide array of applications of, of the Ngram viewer to uh, to a range of problems. It is absolutely the case that I think uh, many traditional historical problems have to do with subtle interpretations of particular texts. It's not something that computers do terribly well. But when one is looking at, you know, broader trends uh, in the uh, in the language, which is not something that traditional history um, can do very easily. I think the Engram viewer has proven to be very valuable, and there have been numerous books and articles tracking, you know, any any range of things, I mean, from the emergence of particular sorts of you know expletives and insults to uh, you know the emergence of uh, you know language uh, that describes particular scientists. Um, the emergence of language that describes particular fields. Uh, I mean, I think a simple example, for instance, that uh, emerged from uh, ben-, ben Schmidt's work, actually, in our group, which just shows a very, very simple application, but something that would have been inconceivable before, uh, is he wrote a script that uses the engrams to test the accuracy of the historical language in historical dramas on television. Hmm. And, uh, you know, this you know, turned out to uh it turned out to actually work very well. You could find all kinds of uh 
strange anachronisms that no human would have ever noted just using the statistical method. And, and in fact, um, you know, that has led, uh, that led, for instance, I believe, uh, you know, Boardwalk Empire to reach out to him and to say, hey, why don't you run this on our scripts before we air the, uh, you know, television program uh, so that we can, we can do a more accurate job of, of representing the past. So, I mean, um, you know, that's one of, uh, you know, of many examples. Another simple example is, of course, look, we, you know, this is one of the things actually, uh, you know, we talk about in an article and in our book, um, the ability to track censorship in an automated way that JB was mm-hmm. uh, mentioned earlier. I mean, censorship is a real thing, and the United States people are perhaps not as acutely aware of it uh, as folks in other countries are. Um, but the ability of a large government to suppress information um, is, you know, alive and well in the 21st century. The notion that one can go through massive numbers of texts and detect censorship uh, in the past uh, suggests that we can do the very, the, the very same thing right now. And, uh, you know, the ability to characterize what sorts of ideas are being suppressed is, uh, is pretty fundamental. The ability to keep those intellectual discussions alive, you know, the way to, you know, keep alive discussion of the Tiananmen Square incident, which is, you know, by and large, uh, you know, many say is actually widely unknown um, in China. And certainly, actually, um, you know, we had the experience in, in publishing our book of encountering you know, the censorship of, of that material. So, I mean, those kinds of applications, I think, are, are quite important. What about the implications, even in a cultural and political framework, in understanding how ideas, how movements become popular or unpopular, for that matter, by looking at language? Either one of you. I think I will just, uh, just like a small, small remark about that, is that uh, I don't know about the applications of that, uh, but I think that, uh, the the implications of having the ability to look at trends in our culture in a very broad sense might help uh, bring science closer to understanding um, what it is that what underlies the dynamics of of human thought at the social scale. And I think we we have very little understanding of that. Actually, we have a good understanding. We have we have some understanding of how biological populations of organisms evolve, change over time and about the mechanisms that drive those. But I think that in quantitative terms and scientific terms, we have not, not that much understanding of what drives the changes and evolution in uh, human thought. And I think that's fantastically interesting because it is what, who we are. You know, our past is who we are as a society. And understanding how that comes about, how that changes, how our perception of that changes from a quantitative and, and scientific perspective is uh, something that I, think, I find extremely um, interesting, and I think uh, big data uh, furnishes us a powerful tool for helping advance on that front. It's not the only tool at all, but it's a very powerful one. Erez, talk a little bit about some of the things that you want to be able to do with this still moving forward, some of the areas that you still want to explore. Well, I think one thing that's important is to bear in mind that books are a tiny subset of the historical record, and, and we think it's really essential that other aspects of the historical record can be analyzed in this way as well. And so uh, we've done 
work uh, making it possible to browse large newspaper corpora, um, large corpora of scientific papers, uh, and many other types of uh, texts uh, over, you know, over the web using an interface that's in fact more powerful than that of uh, of the Google and Grand Viewer. Um, so I think making it possible to take the entire digital historical record, to take the entire historical record, to digitize it, and to allow people to interact with it in a in a seamless way, I think is a major task. You know, not just you know for um, for the two of us, but but for us in the sense of you know sort of this generation of of people, right? A big chunk of what we're doing now is, I think making important decisions about what aspects of our history are going to be preserved in digital format um, so that they can be shared and uh, analyzed and explored by us and our descendants, and, and which ones we're not going to make efforts uh, to preserve and thus lose. JB, what are some of the things that you want to see happen with this? Well, I think I, I concur with Eris entirely. Uh, I think uh, the digital, the, our record, our cultural record, is uh, much larger than books. I mean, our present is already digitized, and our past is becoming digitized very fast. With companies like Google and uh, and states wanting to digitize their own um, records, I think uh, bringing this back, putting this in the hands of the people, I think is very important. Finding ways for people, uh, scientists, uh, citizens, to access uh, way like big data ways of looking at their past and their shared history, I think is very important. Will lead to uh, very important discoveries. Um, I think also that I would like to see these type of technologies applied in the personal sphere. I would like to see people able to search their own history. Like I have my own emails that date back 10, 15 years in just one place. And looking at trends in my own emails is <laughs> quite uh, interesting to me. You know, because of course I'm interested about things that talk about me. So <laughs> I'm interested in my emails. But also I'm very uh, stunned each time to see that I forgot about this or that, and I see trends that I had completely forgotten about that were once important to me. I think uh, we have, we tend to have a very narrow view of, of who we are at the individual scale and the social scale, because it's very hard to remember the past. And having ways to bring the past closer to us, both at the individual and the social scale, I think can only uh, you know, lead to useful outcomes. Erez Aiden, Jean-Baptiste Michel, the book is Uncharted, Big Data as a Lens on Human Culture. Erez, JB, I thank you both so much for spending time with us. Thank Thanks you. so much. It's our pleasure. Really appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 